The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is the episode for the 23rd of January, 2014, in which we talk about project management. So, Brian, do you have any opinions about project management? All that glitters is not gold. <laughs> do you have any other opinions about project management? Uh, good project managers worth their weight in gold. That's a, oh, okay. That's another one. Uh, you can't execute any sufficiently large project without project management, and most projects that don't require any project management aren't sufficiently interesting. Mm. Now, do you have anyone that is uh, close to you that is, say, proficient in project management? I do, and he's on the podcast. And who would that be? Adam. Adam? Well, I don't know about proficient. Um, you have a certificate. It's official enough. <laughs> You're certified, I've, man, or certifiable. I've been sufficiently trained, it appears. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't lie. Is it hanging on your fridge right now? N- no, it isn't. Uh, it's actually on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we decided that since you have the certificate, you are the expert. Yeah, I, I've picked up on that. Uh, I kind of wish I'd have known that a little, er- little sooner, but uh, <laughs> we'll go with it. Okay. Well, certainly, as uh, as Brian indicated, uh, engineers often get involved in project management, whether they're, they're just part of the team or leading the effort. Projects of sufficient interest usually have sufficient complexity that somebody wants to try to manage that project. So uh, we thought we'd talk some this evening about project management and the lessons we've learned and the, uh, the exposure we've had to that uh, topic. Uh, before we roll into that, I just uh, wanted to encourage everybody, if you haven't already, please fill out our listener survey. Put it up on the website on the 9th of January, and we will leave it up through the 8th of February. And we'd love to know a little bit about you, what you like about the show, what you don't like, what kind of guests you'd like to, us to invite in the future. So if you could take a moment or two and go fill that out, that would be wonderful. So, Adam, since you are our resident expert, what is project management? Well, project management is simply the management of projects. Um, Ooh, that's good. <laughs> uh, I guess first you have to know what a project is. And according to the Project Management Institute. Uh, well, that's official sounding. Yes. Uh, which is an organization that's put together a book on project management called the PIMBOK. And we'll include a link link in the show notes. Defines a project as a something that is temporary and unique. So, like snow plowing is not a project, but um, design of the newest power regulation I see would be because you're only going to do that once. It's unique, and at least hopefully it's temporary. You finish it and you're done, and then you move on to the next thing. If only. So a company like, uh, you know, Next Computer that sort of had a brief history, that's temporary. That's unique. Is that Was that a project? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose depending on how you want to view it, uh, you, you could. Usually it's going or it's set to go after a specific goal right. and to accomplish something. And, and just 
temporary and unique trying to separate it from day-to-day operations because they, they're different things that both have to happen, but PMI seems to encourage those to be managed with separate approaches. So getting coffee is not a project, whereas designing a million coffee makers is a project. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. What, well, now, so, Brian, you had in the past, you had a term for the, There's like a difference between one-time projects, which it sounds like Adam's describing, and sort of recurrent you know, projects, which I guess is more like manufacturing. It was like science experiment or something. Oh, uh, evidence-based scheduling or, oh, no, no, no. Yes. Now I remember what you're talking about. Uh, you've either done it before or it's a science project. Yeah. And, and so uh, how would you define that? What's the difference uh, between uh, a science project and something that's not a science project in your view? Okay. Intel designing, uh, Going after iterative improvements in semiconductors, uh, semiconductor physics, process, uh, efficiencies, architectures, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, reducing feature size. Whereas designing the first transistor, you know, if you set out to create a transistor and nobody's done it before, that's a science project. Okay. You have, you generally have no idea how long it's going to take for you to achieve your goals. Mm-hmm. And also it's very, even if you, de- even if your goal is designing the transistor, it's very difficult to predict the follow on tasks in the scope of engineering projects. Um, generally the science projects are something Rube Goldberg esque. So as, <laughs> as soon, as soon as the proposed solutions get too convoluted, they become science projects. Yeah. And has, has that ever freaked you out yes so i'll just say yes <laughs> <laughs> i've been on projects where we start and you know we cobble together something and i'm almost embarrassed that this is the starting point but inevitably you know there's some really rough prototype that you have to do to get to get the ball rolling yeah uh you know and there's a I think everyone everyone goes down the path of doing something they've never done before, but I think we often forget how much we lean on, say, uh, vendors. Mm-hmm. We we kind of expect people who to have solved many of the problems that we're going to encounter, and we just need to cobble together the right solutions. You know what I mean? So the terminology we always use for somebody who was just ordering parts and putting it together was a catalog engineer. Yeah, I, and I don't mean that. What I mean is, uh, but you mean that, but you are counting on other people, your suppliers, to to have big pieces of the solution. I'm going to design an embedded system. I'm not going to design a compiler. I'm not going to design the silicon <laughs> that goes into the device. I'm not going to worry about how it's packaging. I mean, right. you limit the scope of the challenges you're willing to take on, and I think. If you really like science projects, you'll say, ah, I'll forego the micro and start designing my, my own whiz-bang ASIC. You know, and there's a time and a place for that, but there are certainly people who will see every problem as an opportunity to design something from Maxwell's equations on up. Right. At some point, you need to let somebody else do part of the work. Yes, you need to understand your core competency. And, uh, and my core competency, core competency is not silicon design, unfortunately. That'd be fun, though. But also, right. if my core competency was silicon design, I would not be doing embedded systems for the most part. Right. So I had a conversation with uh, Jim Heilman, who we had on 
as a guest on the show a couple times uh, previously, and I mentioned to him that we were going to do this episode, and he brought up the notion that that he thought that engineers who were really strong technically made worse project engineers or project managers than those who were not quite so into the into the uh, into the geekiness of of engineering. So those who enjoyed sort of you know communicating and sharing and you know, didn't want to be the one down there, you know, designing the silicon, so to speak. Uh, they made better project engineers. You think that's true? Um, I can see a case to be made for it, but I can also see a case to be made for. Uh, I mean, in my experience, some of the best technical, some of the best project managers I've known were very technical. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be a balance. Uh, I don't know. I see all of the characteristics of, and Adam can speak to this more. I see all the characteristics of good project management really being wholly unrelated to technical competency. They have to do with, you know, kind of as you said, the interpersonal uh, capabilities, the uh, mm-hmm. the human wetware, if you will. Yeah, I would say they're separate skills to be a good project manager versus a, a good technical expert. They're, they're separate, but not necessarily exclusive. Just maybe the people who end up, uh, the way many of the organizations are structured nowadays, the people who excel in the technical and end up not becoming project managers tend to not have those project management skills hmm. because they don't have those project management skills, so they're not moving up in the organization through the project management side. They're staying where they're comfortable. Yeah, I've, I've seen that at work too. I, uh, I think that's a pretty legit thing to say. Some of the engineers that make, you know, brilliant engineers, I can't stand going to meetings led by them because they ramble off topic. You never leave with a clear picture of what you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, then there's other engineers who maybe aren't incompetent when it comes to technical. That's way too strong of a word. But, uh, you know, they, they couldn't sit down and derive something if they needed to, but they know their way around the bench. And, you know, they, they run meetings like a general, and it's awesome. <laughs> I also know several people who are very good at both. Well, that's a rare breed. It is it is fairly rare, but it, it does exist. Now, with respect to technical projects, what fascinates me, and I guess maybe as a f- question back to uh, your friend and to all of you, who's steering the ship from a technical point of view then? Because... You know, at, at at the end of the day, you're going to the moon. Somebody's got to pick a rocket engine. You know, how, how is the consensus built for that choice? And and you know, if it's made at a project management or a management level, you know, there's got to be a minimum level of technical competency, and at some level, maybe even a better one. How do you how do you look at your team, the solutions your team has put forward, and sort through, you know, the be the weed from the chaff, if you will. Yeah, but I mean when when President Kennedy said the US had to go to the moon uh, within the decade, I guess it was nineteen sixty, he didn't you know, he didn't have to be a technical expert to, you know, lay forth that vision. Oh, clearly, but you know, an engineer came up with you know, Von Braun had an idea. Right. You know, someone came up with the F1 engine, if I believe that's what it was called. How did they go down that path? How, how did they choose, 
you know, I believe that was a liquid hydrogen rocket versus a uh, versus a maybe it was kerosene. Either or, you know, how did they make their fuel choices? You know, yeah, there's no doubt there has to be technical expertise down the you know down the chain as you move along. But I don't know how much of that technical expertise has to be at the top level. Oh, I, and I, I'm not indicating the top. It's I, okay. I, it's clearly it's clearly a spectrum. It is a uh, or it's a uh, the technical awareness with what goes on in an organization rolls off with some sort of decay function as you move up the uh, food chain. Right. Well, and I'm sure as we talk about it, we'll talk about it later. Uh, the concept of work breakdown structures. At some point you you take the details and you aggregate them and you keep aggregating the details till you get to a, well the project uh, and it, it, you can break it down further uh, you break, break it down going from the top to the individual little littlest part of the project and it, it just varies on what level you're involved with the the project manager or the project champion doesn't need to know the individual little itty bittiest details but somebody does. Yeah, picking up the small details is is pretty important. Well, well so let me ask this. Typically within an organization, you know, a, a engineering business or, you know, a manufacturing firm, they've got ongoing functions. You know, they have to manufacture a product. They're designing things. So you've got functional group managers. So then how does this play when you've got somebody who's a project manager coming in and trying to guide the project when it isn't, you know, it, it isn't necessarily always in line with what the functional groups want to do. That's a topic discussed in the PMI documents, and they call it either a strong matrix or a weak matrix organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily agree with their terminology. They're talking about a strong matrix organization being one where the project manager can come in and say, all right, we're doing this project. And they can pull resources from wherever, and they have ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a weak matrix organization being one where the project manager is kind of coming along and begging for help. Right. Uh, it's like, I have this project. Uh, I, I need you to give me somebody to help me with it. I think that there needs to be a balance point in my personal thought. But that there is definitely that challenge. And so you, you need the the project manager needs somebody from quality control, even though that quality control person may not report to them. And that's a a very important part of managing the project is managing those resources, even though they may not report to you directly. Mm -hmm. One other way of looking at the, both the strong and the weak matrix organizations would be that uh, a particularly strong matrix organization, engineers are going to be seen. And this is opinion. This this, I hope I don't want to editorialize this point, but it's something that I've seen. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> a strong matrix matrix organization can reduce engineers' um, attachment to projects. So you're taught in school, you know, be it through various design projects, your senior design project, or you know, even in the workplace, that you have some level of ownership over a project. Whereas in a strong matrix organization, you could be very loosely attached to projects because whichever project requires the most effort is is what's going to get the most at that particular time because usually organizations are working on multiple projects is going to get people. So you can get yanked off of something that you've been working on for a long time that's 
quote unquote, maybe your baby and put onto something that you have very little attachment to or is quote unquote doomed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Steve Jobs talked about the, you know, the importance of saying no to projects, even projects that seem very promising uh, so that an organization could stay focused on truly core fundamentals. Of course, I'll also, I mean, it's it's not a panacea the other way. A weak, a weak matrix, matrix organization, you can have people that become entrenched. Uh, quality people get attached to one particular group and other ones are starved. Yeah. So, Adam, when we're when a project manager undertakes managing a project, what is it they're actually managing? What is What are the limitations that they face as, as they move forward? I think everyone's heard about the you can do anything given enough time and money. So you, you have a, a balance between time scope and money. And then you also have to balance that with quality. And those are really the, the three key things a project manager needs to keep in, in mind. They're given a schedule and they have to manage that schedule and make sure that it gets done on time. They're given a scope and need to make sure to avoid things like feature creep. Right. And uh, they're given so much money and so many people, and uh, they need to use those and make sure that they don't go way out of budget. And they still have to deliver the minimum required quality of the product. Um, that's really you know, breaking it down from, okay, you're managing a project. That's really the, the things the project manager needs to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it goes back. I or I, In my brain, I see the triangle that I've always attached to products. You know, you can... Have it fast, you can have it good, or you can have it cheap. You know, pick two out of three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is, is this sort of the same thing, except that the size of the triangle is is related to the scope? How big a, you know, how big a piece of the elephant you're trying to bite off? Actually, I usually, or what I've seen is actually quality in the middle. The size of the triangle is related to quality, and then scope uh, is one of the sides. Okay. So is it more of a tetrahedron than a triangle? <laughs> Well, um, usually I see it depicted as a triangle. You could argue anyway. <laughs> yeah, the way PMI has presented it is a triangle. Um, is that the perfect way of doing it? I don't know. But those are the really the four things that you need to balance. And depending on, it depends a little on your organization. Um, where I am, we have minimum quality that we have to meet. And we just, you go until it's good enough. You're never going to get perfect. You start dropping off the amount of, you have to put in so much more energy to get a little bit better at some point that you say, this is good enough and you move on. So I, the stuff I work on, we have, all right, here's the quality we need to hit. Now these other three things can change. Hmm. So I guess it depends on, on the organization, which of those four factors are going to, uh, to declare as an invariable. Yeah. Yeah. So so now if I was going to start project management and I knew nothing about project management, I guess I'd start, you know, something simple like a to-do list. I'd just write down, you know, here are the things that need to be done. But certainly over time, people have come up with more sophisticated means of trying to, to do project management, right? Well, I think that in essence, all of these various methods come down to a more complex way or a more detailed way of putting together the to-do list. Okay. Probably the first step is developing what's called a work breakdown structure, which is basically taking each task that needs to happen 
and breaking it into smaller and smaller subtasks right. until you get to manageable chunks. Usually something that's it's going to take somebody about a week to do this task, it, this is a small enough task. And then from there you can start working on, on um, things like Gantt charts or critical path method or critical chain methods um, to organize how to go about developing the schedule. Okay, so this is this is sort of like uh, when people are trying to do you know personal time management. They've got their you know their values and then their you know their goals for the year and then the projects they're working on and in the getting things done method. You know, you look for your next action. You know, you break it down so you have a next action that you have to take to to move things along. Is that is that what's uh, happening here on a sort of a uh, enterprise scale? Um, yeah, I, I would say so, uh, and then into even down to a project scale and, um, and they said going down to that smallest to a manageable piece. And is there something special about, for instance, if, if I were doing this for myself and I were trying to make next actions that were a week long or even a day long that, you know, it wouldn't happen. But what is it about a week that seems to work on, you know, larger projects? Well, uh, a week is, and, and maybe Sometimes we push a month or so, but a week seems to be small enough that somebody can focus on that one thing and not really need a lot of uh, a lot of independent interaction. Mm-hmm. As you get into items that are more and more complex and larger, you start having to have things feed into other things. Okay, I have to do these two things, or I have to get these two things in order to get this, and I need these three things to get to this. Usually by the time you get down to that one week mark, it's only a few tasks that have to be done that feed into the current task that feeds into another task or two. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then just a week is fairly manageable. You don't want to go too small. I mean, you could theoretically break it down into, okay, then draw this line and then draw this line. But that's just silly. Um, And a week is, it it doesn't feel like you're micromanaging as much. Okay. All right, this week you need to get this thing done, designing the turn lanes this week. And that's, a, it's a relatively small task, but it's not, it's not micromanaging. Right. Now, one of the, the project management structures that pe- a lot of people get exposed to uh, via Microsoft project is the Gantt chart. So have any of you guys worked on, on projects where they use Microsoft project? And uh, how did you get along with that Gantt chart? Oh, I guess, I guess I should explain what a Gantt chart is first. That might be helpful. So those who have uh, not worked with it, a Gantt chart is you break down all the elements. Uh, you've, you've done a work breakdown, as uh, Adam has indicated, and you've sort of listed the items that have to happen. And on a horizontal uh, line, you'll draw in a beginning date and a, uh, an ending date for each of those tasks, and you will align them in order of dependency. So if task A has to be done before task B on the timeline, you show task A above and to the left, assuming we're moving from left to right, uh, from task B. So task A first, task B second, task C third. And so it shows a way of, it gives you a way of telling you both the dependency of tasks and the rough timeline of tasks. I think the key point there is uh, not just that you can most tools, I think, I'm sure there's something beyond Microsoft Project, and there's a couple other Gantt chart tools, but 
you can link tasks in terms of dependency. So as you're going along, you've got task A, B, and C. Task B can only begin after task A ends and C subsequently on B. As task A slips, you can add time to it, and it'll slip all dependent tasks. Right. So that, you know, the, the thing that was supposed to took a week took a month, your final end, your estimated end date also just slipped out a month. Which doesn't sound like a big deal if it's three things, but if it's 300 things, it becomes a very important tool. <laughs> yeah, those dependencies start to become really important. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I have worked on a few projects where things start to slip, but that end date seems to be locked in stone. That isn't allowed to move. That makes things a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, and it depends on if that item is on the critical path, too, um, which I guess I'll define right now. Uh, the critical path is the series of events that need to happen on schedule in order for the project to complete on time. Right. Because uh, you could have items which happen simultaneously, and if you have two tasks feeding into the same third task, and one task takes a week and one task takes a month, well, you can start that task that takes a week at any point during that month because that task that takes that full month is going to be critical. Mm-hmm. Because it's going to take longer, um, and then you get you can get into things like early starts and early finishes and late starts and late finishes and, and do all sorts of math to come up with these things that uh, managers like to throw around like float. Um, but if you really want to know about that, I would really suggest you look that up because it's somewhat difficult to explain on a podcast medium. <laughs> right. Um, Oh, and here I thought I knew nothing about what we were talking about today. Some of that sounds familiar that I see in meetings. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, to all the college students and extremely young engineers out there, your job in life will be to avoid being on the critical path. <laughs> when in doubt, pass it off to the other department. <laughs> so now the, the difficulty with that and a lot of these methods is that determining these dependencies is difficult. If you're doing something for the first time, I suppose if, if you, you have a recurring project, you should know what, you know, roughly what order these things happen. But so I'm, I'm thinking back to an example where I was working for a, a, a medical device manufacturer and they were making a new uh, glucose strip for checking uh, people's uh, blood sugar. And they were shifting from a product that was optical. That is, you'd, you'd put the drop of blood on the strip and it, the chemistry would change color and the meter would, would read the color. And so that's how you told, uh, could tell what the, the blood sugar was, the glucose. And they were moving to a, uh, electrochemical system where they would put a voltage or pass a current, uh, put a voltage across the chemistry that had mixed with the blood and read the resistance or read the current. I don't know which exact, I suppose they were probably reading the current. So it was a completely new method of manufacture, which the company had at that time no experience. And so just simple things like we early on we were talking about when we deposited the chemistry onto the strip. That seemed like, well, you just, you know, you spit you spit the chemistry out onto the strip. But we started to run into all kinds of problems with, well, if there's a static charge on the plastic that makes up the strip, the chemistry would ball up. You know, how do we get it to spread? And then how do we get it to dry fast enough? 
and uh, uh, how do we how do we scale this up? And so when we started the project, these issues that it, it was a small piece on the task chart, and all of a sudden once we got into it, it was a very you know this was a, almost a project unto itself, and so we you know completely derailed the the initial estimates because. There's just no way for us to know when we started this project the complexity of what we were getting into. Can I ask you a question in retrospect? Though? Sure. Should was everyone on the team kind of was there a general feeling that you should have known that it would have been as big of a problem as it was? I don't know as there was a sense that you know people were being critical as though we should have known this. Uh, but there was definitely a lot of frustration that that initial estimates of we're going to have a product out by a certain date wasn't happening, and just day after day after day we you know grind and grind and grind and you know it was an issue that took you know it's been a while but like six months to resolve. I mean it was it was a long battle to try to get this thing fixed. Well, it, it sounds like you ran across a a risk which was an unknown unknown. <laughs> Uh, not to transition too harshly. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Rumsfeld. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, risks are, are certainly a part of project management that affect schedule as well as budget and scope. And risks can are generally broken down into four categories. The known knowns, which are things that you know are going to be a problem. Right. The unknown knowns, which are things that you don't necessarily know you know yet. Okay. Um, things like intuition, things you don't realize you're going to need, but you know. Okay. The so known, you, may have, you, oh. may, you may have some talents, but you don't know that they apply in this instance. Yeah. Uh, the known unknowns, things that you know are going to be problems, but you don't know how to solve them yet. Okay. And then the unknown unknowns, which are the, the scary ones that are, are floating out there that you have no idea are coming at you. Right. Anybody else have anything to comment on that? Well, so I'll go back to the, to all the, uh, you know, some of these methods we talked about, the, you know, critical path and, and, uh, uh, program evaluation review technique. You know, there's, there's some, some, from a mathematical standpoint, there's some beautiful, you know, theory that go along with these ideas, but they require you have, you're able to construct a reasonable path that you know what order things are going to happen in. And that's just not always the case. So I'm not, I'm not saying that product management is not without value. I'm just saying that my experience has been oftentimes there's a lot of time spent trying to fuss with the project management software and the project management techniques that would be better spent trying to focus on the core problems that are that are causing the difficulty. Yeah. And I think when it comes down to it, or my personal thought when it comes down to it, project management is a tool to come up with a plan, but isn't the end all. Just because we have this beautiful project management plan and this great schedule, in the end, getting the project done is what matters. Right. And if that schedule gets completely thrown out and revamped halfway through, okay. So something came up we didn't know or we learned something. But in the end, it's getting the project done that matters. And these are just tools to to help get there. 
Yeah, I've been I've been thankful. Knock on wood, of course. Um, at work, there's a pretty good dialogue between the the project managers and you know the more technical guys out actually running the tests and designing the projects. Um, you know, there's there's a good dialogue. Whereas you know we understand we have to get the product out the door, and the project manager will push that. But if the designers are really screaming that, well, we can push it all you want, but it's still not going to make it work. You know, eventually. Each side sees the other's point and will concede if they've lost. <laughs> we're not we're not changing the schedule at all costs. When when we can avoid it, you know, if a customer says we'll design you out if the silicon isn't available this day, well, you try to work around that as you can. But that's easier said than done sometimes. Yeah, the project management is projects i should say i shouldn't say project management. projects are made even worse when you're not just fighting schedule and and technical issues it's triply worse when you're fighting business constraints yeah but i guess you know that's going back into adam's you know known knowns known unknowns you know if you know ahead of time that the customer has a real strict deadline then you know designing that new whiz bang feature uh becomes top priority because that's got the most risk and maybe you skimp and maybe not skimp, but you you sacrifice in other areas where you can use a tried and true block, tried and true method instead of innovating there because you know you have a tight tight deadline. Well, and if you know that going in, you can take and uh, decide on risk management strategies to ensure that you meet that schedule. And so maybe you have a risk that is is likely going to affect your schedule or might affect your schedule but you can spend a bunch of money to make sure that it you don't that doesn't happen or it doesn't affect your schedule much and you can choose to to do that in order to make sure that that schedule is held but you end up spending money and that gets back to that that balance between scope uh, schedule cost and quality and as far as dealing with risks, there's kind of four approaches you can take. You can either accept it and deal with it. You can mitigate it or enhance it. Keeping in mind risks can be a good thing, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. But you can avoid them and make sure they don't happen. Or you can hand them off to somebody else, make it somebody else's problem, or maybe give it give this um, windfall to somebody else to take advantage of. Define windfall. <laughs> um a positive risk. Oh, okay. Or a, a positive risk that comes to fruition. So maybe in designing this chip, you discover some... Yeah, po positive risk, meaning it blew up? A positive risk, meaning something good that wasn't planned. Oh, okay. okay. Um, a discovery that you weren't intending to go for, or... Um, these are always very hard to come up with. <laughs> right. So, so to go back to my example, just so we can do it. So uh, accept would be, well, we're going to plow. To, we accept that we don't know exactly how we're going to get the drawing accomplished, but we're going to plow ahead and whatever it takes is whatever it takes. So there we've accepted it. Mm -hmm. If we mitigate it, we would say this drawing method is bad, but if we if we reduce our expectations of the chemistry or what it's going to do, we could eliminate some of this drawing problem, so therefore we'd reduce some of the risk that we won't meet timeline. We could say that, well, 
this is a silly way to go. We're wasting lots of money here. Let's go back to the optical method we had. Let's drop the electrochemistry and that then we would be avoiding the risk altogether. Mm-hmm. Or we could pass or share it by saying hire a consultant to figure it out. <laughs> Air consultant figured out. There you go. <laughs> That's uh, kind of the, the quintessential way to, to hand off a risk. Okay. So is that the part before we got into this, you were talking about spending your way out of the problem? That's one way to do it. <laughs> okay. I mean, another way could be hire more staff or, well, those are kind of the two biggest ones. Buy new gear. Get Carmen a brand new million dollar oscilloscope or something. I say we make that a top priority. <laughs> Maybe that take two while we're at it. So all of those could be, and it all depends on the situation, but all those could be ways to to uh, spend your way out of a problem. Right. And, and that sometimes companies are happy to do that, and sometimes they will not. Well, and it, it comes down to what's in the best interest for them. Uh, I've heard of examples, just today we were talking about, theoretical example is, say, a casino we're trying to uh, build and some regulatory agency were requesting that they get a um, traffic impact study. Mm-hmm. They're going to want that thing done as quickly as possible, and they're willing to pay for it. Because every day that that's not done is a day that they can't build, which is a day they're not making money. Right. So if it costs several million dollars to get it done right away, that's fine. Because it's, save, it's making them several more million dollars. The opportunity cost of waiting is significantly less than the cost of the study. Yep. Yeah, we've run into similar stuff with, uh, you know, getting chips out into the market where something's going to hold it up or a customer may miss a build date if we don't, you know, come in on time. You know, but one of our specs is off. You have a dialogue and say, you know, is it is it worth pushing us back because, you know, our power consumption is three milliwatts higher than expected, or is is that not going to be the end of the world? And hopefully they get back to you and say, no, that's fine. We can live with that. And hopefully your next generation ship will be better. Or you find out that that spec was entirely fabricated to start off. With. Exactly. Yeah. They'll go back and do something and realize an intern made that spec and didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> Or the spec holds and you need to pay for a rush on new silicon. Exactly. That's the one you hope to avoid, but, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah. No one ever takes my my advice of, you know, well, we're just too high on power to make all the resistors ten times bigger and we'll be fine. (laughs) It's it's never that simple and I don't understand. Aren't resistors expensive on silicon? Or are you talking about outside of the package? Any resistor. Inside, outside. (laughs) It all scales by 10. It's fine, right? Just throw an order of magnitude at it. Exactly. Actually, that's horrible design advice. No one take that if you're listening. (laughs) We can edit out that (laughs) cap. Jeff, you can make that sound. This is good design advice. Everyone do this. (laughs) Okay. We can have just Just beat me out like I'm swearing. I think that's better. <laughs> it, it, it's probably a good idea that we preface our sarcasm as not good advice all the time. <laughs> well, you could just call the podcast that. <laughs> Don't take that good advice. <laughs> put that put that underneath. That's our tagline. The engineering comments. None of this is written in stone. <laughs> so, if someone is uh, venturing out and is going to do uh, project management, what are the uh, 
the processes that are involved in this? What, uh, what steps does one have to move through if they are going to successfully manage a project? Uh, well, there's typically uh, five steps included in, in project management. Uh, the first step is initiation or initiating the project. Uh, that's going to typically involve collecting your your specifications, your requirements, um, getting your team together, deciding what you're going to need for people roughly. Right. Uh, then is planning, which is going through all this project management stuff and building your plan, mm-hmm. uh, coming up with a rough schedule, coming up with a rough idea of how to approach it, coming up with a rough budget. Right. Then, then there's uh, executing, where you actually, okay, we've got this plan, let's go do it. And then uh, monitoring and controlling, which is where you go back and you look at, okay, so where do we sit? And then you go back to planning. And, and these uh, middle three steps are iterative. Right. So you, you develop a plan, you do it, and then you see how it worked. And you see where you sit. And then you go back and you uh, adjust your plan. Right. Work on it and see where you sit until you get to the end. Okay. Um, and then the last step is closing or close out, uh, which I've seen most organizations apparently don't do very well. Yep. But it's looking at lessons learned and documenting what you learned and um, trying to increase the organizational knowledge based on, on that project. Yeah, I was going to say the reason that never gets done is because it involves documenting. No one wants to sit down and spend the hours writing up all the lessons learned. They want to get on to the next project. And usually management wants them to get onto the next project as well. Right. Maybe that's what Google Glass is good for. You just wear them at work all the time and <laughs> submit the video to the archives. The process is in there, documented. But does <laughs> but does that do you any good next time you have a project and you need to know how they did something? That's when you hire interns to edit it. <laughs> right. Just condense it down. Well. Or tr- make a transcript that you can search. Right. Are there, are there any good examples of organizations that translate lessons learned into change behavior? I mean, you kind of have, have an osmosis effect where, uh, you know, you have the tribal knowledge. Hey, we learned you don't solder live circuits with uh, a grounded solder iron, you know. Uh, don't solder live circuits you know, anytime. Or other stupid things. Well, sometimes you have to. But, I mean, the point being that you have knowledge that gets disseminated organically. People do stupid things once, organization punishes them, stupid things aren't done anymore. Or positive things happen, things celebrated, positive thing gets repeated. But I think oftentimes you you see organizations create uh, libraries of lessons learned. I mean, even, even if... They're not even trying, and nobody ever goes back and reads them. Like, yeah, but doesn't it have to be something fundamental to the organization? I mean, uh, you know, companies like uh, Dupont, who started as an explosives company, I think, you know, have an emphasis on safety, and so you know that's sort of bought up into the culture. And so, if you're rising through the ranks, you know, you, you have to know about safety and and the lessons learned from other plants because that's the emphasis of the company. Uh, on the other hand, you may not have the same emphasis on, say, innovation that you might have at 3M because 3M was always about innovation. Mm-hmm. So those are both two good, two very good examples. 
Well, and, and, and with the internet, I mean, Lord, we've got all kinds of technical information now. I mean, you just about any subject you want, you can go read as much as you want on that subject. It's it's a matter of attention. What is important to you? What is an important What is important to your organization? I think the difficult ones are always with respect to project planning. You know, how do you make sure that not every time you do something, it turns into a, a science project? Or how, how do you remember when somebody suggests five years down the line at that medical company that, you know, hey, we've got a totally new way of doing this um, that's coming out of R&D. What's the technology readiness level of that particular process before you sell it, launch a product, and then in the process of productionizing it, you find issues? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that uh, we, well, we as engineers like to get down into the, uh, into the nitty-gritty and uh, do things ourselves. It's sort of uh, you're familiar with the not invented here syndrome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's a problem. If it uh, if an idea was not invented here, then we don't believe it. And so we're you know I think we as engineers can be especially susceptible to wanting to reinvent the wheel, as you said, uh, just because it's fun to reinvent the wheel. Absolutely. Well, and sometimes there is a place for reinventing the wheel, which I guess is outside of the scope of our discussion right now. <laughs> right now, now, I noticed in the outline here that uh, you've you've got buy a gavel to keep meetings on task. Is that an important part of project management? Yes. When people start delving off into debates that should be taken offline, <laughs> <laughs> that that wasn't something Adam added to the list, was it? No, that was me. <laughs> I just feel like it'd be handy. And it's only twenty two bucks. And it looks pretty pretty official. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to a. Uh, Wooden handcrafted lawyer gavel. Yeah, meant for auctions, but, you know, project management, too. Is it bad that I uh, I read that as buy a gravel? Well, that would be Adam, then, because he's the only one who works with gravel out of all of us. I will admit I did read gravel <laughs> the first time I saw it, and then it's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like a little sack of rocks to throw at people. No, we would never, we would never endorse that sort of thing. That would be bad. No, because then. But only because HR gets involved and no one wants to deal with that paperwork. That paperwork. <laughs> and sensitivity training. <laughs> yeah, that's no fun. So uh, I'm kind of curious uh, to hear from you guys what uh, your best experience with project managers were. Did you have – are there any that you look back and you go, that was a great – the project went really well and that person was a terrific project manager and if so, what did they do? Not everyone at once. <laughs> We're all racking our brains here. So part of my problem is most of the projects I've worked on aren't complete yet. Right. Just because of the, the time scale of civil engineering projects. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I got one. I, uh, the, the chip never saw the light of day, but it was one of the first ones I started working on when I uh, started my job. And the project manager did a, a a real good job of keeping everybody on task. You know, he uh, he kept pressuring the marketing guys to give us, you know, customer feedback on what kind of chip they'd like to see, um, what was already out there in the market, and how it performed compared to what our technical guys were saying we could do. You know, he, he pressured us to get the data and, you know, in a timely manner so we could all make decisions on it. And just kind of kept the whole thing moving forward at a at a real good pace. And you know, when things started looking grim, 
you know, kept asking us tough questions, you know, is it worth spending another, you know, however many thousands of dollars to spin another Revisilicon if we see this isn't going anywhere? Mm-hmm. You know, how much better is it really going to get? Is it going to solve problems one through six or is it only going to solve one of them? And, you know, why waste the money? Right. And when you say pressuring, how how is that accomplished? Uh you know, just every every week at the the meeting, you know, pulling up the Gantt chart and showing what's been checked off the to-do list and how that influences things. And, you know, we were trying to meet a couple of the customers' design schedules and when Intel would release another set of specs. So we were trying to trying to get to that, that target. And, you know, you just kept saying, okay, well, you can have more design time, but we're going we're gonna to miss it by two weeks. Where do you suggest we find it? Right. And so when that happened, was that uncomfortable? I mean, was the entire room quiet or was it uh, – how did, how did that happen? No, everybody was pretty good about it. You know, someone was saying, well, you know, if, if these couple circuit blocks aren't going to change very much, we can shave off, you know, four days of apps validation and then, you know, the testing guys were like, well, yeah, if that's not going to change, we don't have to change our code for the automated testers. So shave off three days of testing time. And, oh, now you got yourself a week. Uh, okay, well, where else can we find stuff? Okay, so when you say pressuring, it was more like, you know, sort of gently prodding people as opposed to beating them over the top of the head with a two-by-four. <laughs> yeah, he would have only needed a gavel maybe three or four times <laughs> during okay. the whole project. <laughs> Unless you don't count the, you know, this meeting is adjourned and then tapping it. Right. I, I You know, I've run a, a few projects where I've found that the weekly meetings, I hated those because those always stretched out into an hour, an hour and a half of, you know, this long, tedious discussion of, of mm-hmm. philosophies. And uh, the, the projects I ran tended, I tended to prefer having a 15-minute meeting every morning. So we'd have five 15-minute meetings during the week as opposed to one that ran an hour and a half where we just, you know, what you know what are we going to get done today? What's the critical issue? Any issues? Let's go do it. Um, but I don't see that happen. My experience was that type of, of meeting arrangement didn't happen very often. So kind of the, the concept of the standing meeting where uh, you go into the conference room and you're not allowed to sit in a chair. Right. Because if you're standing up, you're going to keep going and you want to go and be done. Right. Yeah, I've seen pros and cons to both, but the weekly one-hour meeting is uh, normally what happens in my or in my office. And assuming you know everybody stays on task and doesn't, you know, the meeting doesn't dissolve into something it shouldn't be talking about. Uh, I, I don't seem to mind it. You know, one hour that way you get to hear about everything that's important and then move on. You know, if you have a meeting every day, it's kind of hard to always have something to report because things come up and, you know, one day you just didn't get as much done as you thought. So a week gives you a good time to work on the project. It also depends on kind of the candor and uh, the culture of the meeting because sometimes, even if they're hour meetings, they're some of the only times that you can get a very diverse group of people in a room. And mm-hmm. uh, That's true. You know, everyone's in Cubeland, everyone has their headphones on. You know, you might not know that the issue you're fighting right now, somebody saw 10 years ago and may have some insights on on that. And they would never 
know that you're working on it until you status on it. You know, I've ha- I've had some very fruitful conversations in those kinds of meetings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if they're rambling. <laughs> right. Well, there's also a time to have meeting have discussions offline, which I think people tend to, in general, be fairly bad at understanding that. Okay, well, we need to have this discussion, but this isn't the place because I got thirty other people, or ten other people, or five other people here that don't need to be here for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we do that all the time too. You know, we'll have the weekly status meeting that talks about the project as a whole, and then there's always usually at least one other meeting um, on the app's validation status. And the only people who attend that are any applications engineers and the designer. And, you know, you work out the problems you're seeing on the bench and what can be done to fix it in silicon next time or, you know, what other tests need to be run on the bench to figure out what's actually happening. And then if it dissolves into, you know, it devolves into a test problem, you bring in a test engineer for one week and then they don't come anymore. So it's it's a real good way to keep everybody focused and not waste everybody's time. And then that way in the, the big weekly status meeting, you're not diving off into the minutia of your compensation circuit when, you know, five of the ten people, six of the ten people don't need to hear about it. They just need to know that it's working. Yeah. Right. So I've been, uh, I mean, my experience with uh, organizational meetings of this type ended about uh, 15 years ago. Is that right? More like 20 years ago when I went out on my own. Uh, so I spent a number of years on my own, then then a past number of years uh, at school. So I'm curious whether modern technology has changed anything. So you sit in a meeting and a question comes up, you know, does Joe have the data or, you know, is is the problem fixed? And in the past, somebody would have to write down it as an action item and then go check on it. Is is modern technology changed that? Are you able to uh, send a text message asking Joe about that, you know, in the meeting? I'm not, no. Everything's done either via email or face-to-face. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, about the only thing technology seems to have done is reduce the amount of traveling, allowing us to have more meetings. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you need to meet with somebody who is – 30 miles away, 50 miles away, 200 miles away, you just go into a video conference room and and you can have that meeting without having to hop on a plane or hop in a car and drive there and drive back. Right. So I think we're more more willing to have more meetings than we were in the past. Right. And I just wondered, I've been in meetings where, you know, sort of the direction of the meeting was based on misunderstood information and... You know, somebody early in the meeting would raise the question, you know, is it, you know, is is our status A or B? And the group consensus, well, we think it's A. And the entire meeting would be spent mostly on the assumption that A was the status, and we'd find out later that it was B. And so I just wondered whether organizational management had changed, whether people were able to use uh, technology to, to figure out that status question, you know, while the meeting was underway. But it sounds like uh, that that's a technolo- uh, technological revolution that's yet to come. I think that's more of a, uh, a communications issue with 
knowing what needs to be known for that assumption and having the right people in the meeting. And I'm not sure technology will ever make it so that we invite the right people to all the meetings. Well, yeah, that's hard, but because then you start inviting people just in case. Yeah. Okay. Well, so it's, you've probably been able to tell I'm not a big fan of all project management styles, but I, I do have sympathy for those that are project managers. There's a lot that one has to do, and uh, so I don't, uh, I don't mean to denigrate the uh, the abilities or the responsibilities of those who are in, in that position. I seem I think Adam, you referred to a uh, a book, the PMI book. It was it was it project management book of knowledge, project management body of knowledge, body of knowledge. And so, uh, what are the what are sort of the the common elements that uh, project managers have to deal with? Uh, well. They've broken it down into, um, I'm not exactly sure how many there are here, but a series of things that need to be kept in mind. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, project integration management, uh, project scope management, and just talking about how to stop feature creep, keep things on scope, um, and how, make, how to make sure you're not dropping things from okay, your scope. Okay, before we get to scope, let's go back to integration though real quick. Is this integration of resources or integration of people? Uh, project integration management is uh, how the process or how the project coordinates together with other projects and how the different processes within the project coordinate with each other. So okay. just making sure everything works together and meshes. Okay, so you don't, as we talked about earlier, you know, the strong matrix versus the weak matrix, you don't want your project managers coming in and succeeding with their project, but at the same time destroying all the other ongoing operations the business might have. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so then you started with the second one was scope? Scope. uh, And that's just making sure that all the requirements are met and you're not adding new features, uh, feature creep keeping that out of the project, and then making sure you're meeting your, your feature requirements as well. Right. And Brian, have you ever seen feature creep? Always. <clears throat> Was that always? Always. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not always just feature creep. It's You don't fully know the scope of the project until you start it, either in terms of you know the typical uh, 10 pounds in a one-pound box or scenarios or you know you sometimes begin a project and start showing prototypes to a customer and then you find out you know the customer didn't necessarily know exactly what they wanted Um, so i mean you do have it's an iterative process where the feature set you have at the beginning of the project is rarely identical to what you have at the end of the project yeah, and sometimes that's a good thing. I mean, sometimes you yes. discover things along the way. You go, "Wow, if we can do if we can do A, then we could do B and C too. That'd be great." And it is at that point that someone sometimes has to say, "No, <laughs> let's just stick to A." Yeah, that's true. I mean, at the end of, at the end of the day, it is about. I mean, your job as an engineer is to delight your customer. So, you know. I- I don't remember the word delight anywhere in my engineering uh, study. I, I had a wonderful grad school prof that always used the word delight, and uh, <laughs> I, I I agree with him um, because at the end of the day, if you say this wasn't on the this wasn't on the menu, and they say 
you know, I don't care. <laughs> right. I, I can get it from your competitor. I can, I can ask your competitor to, to provide me that feature. Uh, that's what it comes down to. I mean, as we, as I said before, you've got the competing business interests and the project interests and the schedule interests. Yeah, but you know? you're not going to lay that off on man or marketing saying, well, if marketing didn't tell me, it's not my job to figure it out. I think everyone is concerned if the customer, if the customer's needs are not met, not met by the project. I mean, truly, the most useless project would be one that completed, but ultimately, you know, didn't satisfy those who it was intended to satisfy. Right. So, I mean, everyone can talk about how well we got to pair back this to make it, you know. So we can, because because it has to end and it will never be perfect, but it still has to meet the minimum requirements of satisfying your customer. Right. And I think uh, sometimes things which get categorized as feature creep come from poor scope definition. Yeah. Or um, customers defining technical requirements rather than performance requirements. Right. You know, saying, oh, well, you need to use, I want you to use a 56K modem to do this, when really they just want communications between these two devices. Yep. Who is still using a 56K modem? Um, Every ATM. Um, really? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. There, <laughs> I, think I, think I think they're cell-based now, but. <laughs> Wouldn't it be awesome? Uh, we actually have a few of them on things like uh, dynamic traffic signs, okay. dynamic message signs. Okay. It's just real low bandwidth, and they're cheap. Oh, that's Air cool. traffic control systems, I think, still use them. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not really true. I, it wouldn't surprise me, but I hope that's not true. I'll just be ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> so so we've, uh, they, we have to worry about integration and scope. What else do we have to worry about, Adam? Uh, time and making sure that the schedule is met. And I think we talked pretty well at length about some of these work breakdown structures and Gantt charts and scheduling. Um, and there's a couple other things. If anyone wants to learn a little bit more, you can search for things like PERT, which is a, a way of estimating schedule, or Monte Carlo simulations. Um, and there's plenty of others. But those are just a couple of keywords for Google that will find you some stuff. Right. And how come this isn't called attention management? Because I would <laughs> contend you cannot manage time. It, it, as far as we know, at least our perception is, it moves forward at a very steady pace. <laughs> um, I think it comes to more completion management or work getting done management. Okay. Um, but it, it's managing the progress of work as time marches on. Okay, I'll buy that. But I still think it's attention management. Yeah. I actually prefer schedule management. Okay. But, um, yeah, time's just quick and easy. Okay. Um, you've got cost management is kind of, is the next big thing. Just making sure that the budget is met or following the, following that budget and setting that budget. And how does that get done in, uh, the modern organization? Is, uh, so, so 20 years back, you had to wait for the budget numbers to be run at the end of usually every month. You'd only get a monthly update. Well, today you should be able to get it on a daily basis. Do you do you get that information that quickly? Um, somebody who works in private industry may be able to chime in here, uh, either Carmen or Brian. Uh, with the projects I work with, 
we are primarily focused on the construction costs Mm -hmm. and our engineering costs are basically an assumed overhead. Okay. You know, everybody's full time. They're getting paid. So it's a, it's an accepted cost and an overhead cost. So we will run estimates at various times. Uh, when we reach a milestone, somebody will have to go through and do an estimate on what our expected construction construction cost is versus following what our current what our current cost is and how much we've spent. When you guys want to chime in and say about something you know anything about how they you handle it in uh, when you're actually tracking your your engineering costs? I don't know much about that now. Usually, it only becomes an issue when uh, you've doubled or tripled. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you know, I've I've usually worked on projects that have been bid and committed to. At which point, it's whatever it takes to get it done. So, I, and it's also been above my pay grade. I, I generally have not been a part of those meetings. Okay, I have seen the back of the napkin on how much in a large organization can spend on software in a day in terms of if you add up, it's, it's kind of like a, whenever you have a one hour meeting and you can ask the question, how much is this meeting cost? Right. And you add up everyone's hourly salary and, you know, if it's a sufficiently large meeting, all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks right. very easily. Well, I was just curious uh, what advancements had been made in that area as well. So what else, Adam, does one have to manage? Quality management. Uh, so we've sort of covered our, our four balance points at this point. Um, right. And just working with quality management, making sure that the project is going to meet the requirements, does what it's expected to do, uh, does it reliably. Right. And then you also have to manage your human resources which a lot of these tie together, cost and time management and human resource management. But approaching certain resources, you approach differently, and human resources are kind of a, well, they're a unique type of resource where you manage people maybe differently, well, hopefully differently than you would manage a truck or a piece of equipment. Right. If, if you suddenly need somebody who's an expert in chemi- you know, chemistry drawing systems, you may have to go rent them, hire them. Do something, so that makes sense. Uh, and just to motivate humans, it, it, it takes a different approach than signing out a truck out of the pool or something like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a strong matrix organization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, then you have uh, communications management making sure that the people who need to know information know it, things are documented properly, um, things are being sent to people who need to be sent to, and, and that you're getting the information you need. Right. This is sort of the uh, the administrative task of project management, right? Making sure that, that people know what they need to know? Yep. Then next would be risk management. And risks affect all the other things, all the other aspects of project management, but they're unknowns usually, Mm -hmm. and there's something that has to be managed, although they might be, you don't know for sure what's going to happen. So you start building in contingency funds and things like that. Yeah, we kind of talked about that earlier when we handled the uh, the risk matrix. Yep. 
And then there's procurement management, and it's procurement management is making sure you have the materials and services needed to uh, complete the project. So going and signing that truck out of the pool versus, in contrast to the human resource management. Right, and, th- and that can be a big issue if you're on a project and all of a sudden you need a certain material that's in short supply. That can that can be a big issue. Yeah. And then the, the last one, which is a recent addition to the PMBOK, is uh, stakeholder management, which is risk management but dealing with stakeholders, people, because people don't like being called risks. <laughs> but uh, I think that's that it's the easiest way to describe it to engineers who typically don't want to deal with stakeholder management. Right. It, it really is risk management dealing with the people who have some say in this project. Right. So the, so the project manager as a whole who has to deal with uh, integration, scope, time, cost, quality, human resources, communication, risk, procurement, and stakeholder management, they do have quite a bit on their plate. Oh, yes. Okay. I'll, I'll try to be patient with them then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they all appreciate that. <laughs> right. Well, I see that uh, we've uh, once more run over the uh, hour mark, so we should probably think about uh, wrapping up this episode. Uh, anybody have any sort of uh, final thoughts about project management? Not off the top of my head, no. I think I've shared my opinions and thoughts uh, plenty about project management. You've done a fine job of leading us through the uh, through the topic, Adam. You've represented your species well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll uh, add another plug for our listeners. Please go and fill out our listener survey, which you can find on the website at theengineeringcommons.com. And uh, we'll call this episode done and get together in another couple of weeks, reconvene at the Engineering Commons. So thank you, guys, and uh, have a good evening. All right. Take it easy. Yeah, good night. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced by Analog Life, LLC, and Engineering Revision. Theme music by Paul Stevenson. For more info, visit theengineeringcommons.com. <laughs>